Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Favorite Series brought to you by My Entertainment World. If you've never listened to The Favorite Series before, there are sort of two versions of this show. One is us talking to our favorite people about their favorite things, and the other, which is sort of the the core of the series, is us arranging interviews between some people we find really fascinating and we're really big fans of and people they find fascinating and they're very big fans of. Um, so sort of the founding episode was uh, Toronto theater maker Claire Blackwood, who we're a really big fan of, got to talk to Felicia Day, who's one of her idols. And we organized that interview and sort of sat back and listened to her interview someone who is her favorite person. Um, so one of the ideas we had for this series very early on um, was to do a very local version, um, not necessarily setting up people with their favorite celebrities, but setting them up with uh, theater makers and more local approachable people um, who they ne- maybe haven't necessarily communicated how much they're fans of. Um having that sort of like local community, the idea of like, tell people you love them, tell people what you admire about them. Um, Cause even if you, they do actually know each other. Generally, I find that it, it people are very quick to hold back um, compliments and hold back. Oh, I think you're the greatest. Cause no one wants to come off as like, you know, creepy or like, Oh my God, I think you're amazing. But like, we think we're amazing guys. Everybody thinks each other are amazing. And I think that it's important that we tell them. So what we did with this one was we uh, found there's a, there's a figure in Toronto theater who uh, everyone who is sort of in the community or even just around the theater, someone who goes to the theater a lot will recognize her. Um, There's this legendary person named Barbara Fingerroad. And Barbara is a a volunteer. She volunteers with all the organizations. You will see her taking tickets and welcoming people. And she is at every show. There is no person in all of Toronto theater who I have seen at more shows than Barbara. Um, She is genuine. She tries to see absolutely everything. She is so active in the community. She just, she's like the Toronto theater super fan. And as a result, the the community has really taken her under their wing and like really embraced her as well. And as the quintessential Toronto theater super fan, like we just think Barbara is the coolest person. We are big fans of hers. So we thought she'd be a great person to have as part of the favorite series, specifically in this context of like, okay, who is a person in the Canadian theater scene who maybe Barbara does know, maybe she's interacted with them and talked about the weather, but who is that person who this would be her opportunity to actually sit down and tell them that she's their fan and like talk about what makes their work so special in general and specifically to her and let her really take the reins of interviewing them and, and finding out what's, what's so special about them. And I was thrilled when I asked Barbara who she would like, if she was, if she was willing to participate in the favorite series, who she would like to talk to. I said, you know what? It's theater more so than anyone else in the series. I bet I can get you almost anybody you ask for of all theater artists in all of Canada, who is the person you would most want to talk to? And I was thrilled when she picked Courtney Chung Lancaster. Um, Courtney is awesome. I am a huge fan of Courtney as well. Uh, since the very beginning of her career, really, um, she came out through the Soul Pepper Academy and really set herself apart. She is so varied and unique and she's got such a wide skill set and such a deep humanity in her performances. Um, I have often, (laughs) this sounds crazy, I know, but if I, the way I would articulate it is if 
there had to be a designated survivor situation of Canadian theater. If something was going to happen, you know, um, everyone and everyone at the Dora Awards died or something. And you know, I, we had to pick someone to leave behind to rebuild the entire landscape. I would pick Courtney Lancaster. She, the, and, which sounds morbid and weird, but let me explain. I think she would be the greatest person to build an entire community from scratch. She has such an interest in other people's voices, but she herself is such an interesting voice. She is a director with a great eye for casting and for uh, script curation, but she is also an incredible actress herself. She is really great in classical. She's really great in contemporary. She's good in musicals. Like she's got this sort of baseline of skills that I just think that if we had nobody, but we had Courtney, we'd still be okay. Um, which she will hate that I said that she's also incredibly humble and hates doing interviews because she doesn't like talking about herself. Cause again, she's very interested in other people's voices, which I think is sort of a cornerstone of a great artist in today's world is someone who isn't just interested in what they're bringing to the table, but interested in how they can work with others and incorporate other people's experiences and elevate everybody else and really take a holistic approach to community art. Um, she's just really, really special. And she's also a really great person, which is why despite hating to do interviews, um, when I asked her and I, I told her the premise of the series and said, Hey, Barbara would like to interview you. She immediately said, yes, anything for Barbara, I believe is exactly what she said. So, um, this actually was recorded quite a while ago. I, I ended up putting it on the back shelf because of, uh, the pandemic hit right after we did this interview. And I just kind of decided to leave it be for a while. And I, I thought I'd return to it when we were pr publishing more regularly. Uh, so this conversation was actually recorded in person pre pandemic. Um, so you will hear, you will hear they are, they are together in person. No, we did not endanger either, uh, Barbara finger or, uh, Courtney who was at the time very pregnant. Um, but it was recorded in person. They got together in my kitchen, had this lovely conversation, uh, and I hope you enjoy it because I definitely am a huge fan of both of these spectacular women. Barbara, first of all, can you tell us a little bit why, about why you picked Courtney? Well, uh, I picked Courtney because I had to pick somebody, and there's so many somebodies, but she's special because I've seen pretty much all of her work in Toronto. Yeah, but you see everybody's work in Toronto. <laughs> but practically from the beginning, not school, but practically from sure. the beginning, yes. you're um, multi-talented, multifaceted, um, versatile, you know, you act, you sing, you direct, you play musical instruments. You do so many different things. Plus, you're what I call early mid-career. So you have lots of experience, but you still have lots more in your future. So I thought that would be interesting because of where you sit in the in the scheme of things. Plus, I love you. Oh, I like this. <laughs> Let's just listen to Barbara talk about me. Okay, well, now she has to ask you a bunch of questions about you. So you get to talk about you. Oh, okay, so why don't you jump right in there? Okay, so I would like to start with your child self first. When and how did you realize that you are an artist, that it is a profession, 
and that you could make a living at. <laughs> um, I grew up in uh, Anaganish, Nova Scotia, which actually, it's a very small town. Um, I grew up on the outskirts of town, really rural. Um, so my young childhood was a lot of playing outside and playing in the dirt and playing with the chickens. Um, and then at some point, oh, my folks put me in music lessons. I was the youngest, and so I reaped the benefit of being the fourth in birth order who gets to be the embodiment of all of the parents' dreams, whereas the first three children were like the, okay, survival, okay, make sure they're fed, okay. And then the fourth kid got to reap all those, those benefits. So, so they put me in piano lessons and singing lessons, so I had some exposure to performing arts and, and festivals, competitions, um, and at a certain, I think I was 12, there, there, there was a new category in the music festival for musical theater. It wasn't just classical singing or classical piano, there was musical theater. And my teacher encouraged me to sign up and I remember I sang something from Charlie Brown and I choreographed it myself and costumed it myself with my mom's help and sort of, uh, and that's sort of where the bug, where I got the bug uh, of making something a little bit more involved and having a little bit more control um, and agency over it. Yeah, and then, you know, community theater throughout high school. Um, I was a really deeply uncool child. Uh, I think in part because my siblings are much older than me. And so I, I spent a lot of time at home alone reading books and just was not good at talking to or relating to other kids. So, um, you know, there was the Courtney who literally sat alone at lunchtime for much of elementary school and junior high and like read books or sometimes I, I, I had a calculator and sometimes would add up sums <laughs> and see what the sum was. Um, that was cool. Uh, and, and then there was the Courtney who would go to rehearsal and have... I didn't have to come up with things to say to people because I had lines to say to people. And, and that all of a sudden made me kind of extroverted. And so I gained a lot of confidence from doing community theater. Um, and it's funny, you ask me, like, when did I realize it was a, an actual profession and where you could make a living? I, I think because I grew up in relatively rural Nova Scotia, I just didn't know about a lot of jobs in the world um, and so when it came time to decide what to do, someone just sort of said, well, you've been doing this. Why don't you do more of this? And I thought that sounded like a reasonable thing to do. So I just kind of carried on. Um, I'm a bit sheepish about that because I recently met a, a couple of people. I, I met a physician who, you know, he, he went to med school and became a physician and then has subsequently left to become an actor. And I met a, a, somebody who left a decade-long career in the military to become an actor. You know, people who've really chosen this, and I sort of feel like I fell into it. But fortunately, it's stuck for the most part. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about your educational background. You sort of mentioned a little bit of what you're doing with theater, but I'm more interested in, and you talked a bit about why theater, so you answered some of that, but how did you decide which theater skill, schools to attend, and was your choice to attend university on the other side of the country more because you wanted the theory this education would give you to enhance and support your creativity and critical thinking skills, 
to which you could then supplement with more practical and ongoing training and lifelong learning, or? (laughs) (laughs) I wish I had given it that depth of thought, Barbara. This is the short, silly answer I give to people when they ask me that, which is uh, I was really lucky in high school. I won a scholarship. It's called the Loran Scholarship that um, enabled me to go to university. Uh, and and it's a fairly well-respected scholarship. And, and for whatever reason, UBC, the university I ended up going to, would send a little package to the people who have the scholarship. And, and with the scholarship, you're able to choose what school to go to. Um, and they would uh, uh, woo you a little bit. And so they sent me a backpack. <laughs> and it was a really nice backpack. And it was in the early days of laptops being a thing. And it had a really nice laptop sleeve. And it was embroidered with UBC. And I have to say, that swayed me <laughs> a lot, um, was this backpack. The other things I was thinking about, and you sort of... You sort of uh, mentioned this a bit. I I thought I should get a degree. Um, My siblings had university degrees. They had BAs, and I thought that that seemed important as opposed to uh, a diploma or certification program, conservatory program. I don't know that I now think that that's important. Nobody's ever asked to see my degree. (laughs) But I suppose if I ever do go into teaching or go back into academia in some way, it might prove to be useful or important. Um... And I, I did feel like I needed some academic grounding, and I, I have no regrets about going to UBC. There was academic grounding there that, I, that I'm grateful for. But above all now, I feel like I was so young to go to theater school, and I, m- maybe the kids today are more worldly than I was, but I had never seen public transit before. Like, I'd never. T- I got lost on the bus system in Vancouver endlessly because I just didn't know how it worked. I kept getting on express buses and then getting confused why they just blow past my stop. Um, so I felt like I was really young and, and, and if I could go back and go it again, maybe I should have taken a couple years in a diploma program somewhere just to, I mean, it all worked out, but, yeah. but just to learn about the world. So have your, it, this just follows on with has your, how your academic learning opportunities combined with your practical training in the real world, do they inform each other or do you find yourself focusing on one aspect more than the other? And if so, which and why? I think I need to hear that again. Like, does my, my, my practical on the ground training meet the sort of academic theorizing? Right. Like you had the theoretical training yeah, yeah, yeah. more that university provides, I'm assuming, because I haven't gone to theater school. And then you've done subsequent, more practical training. If theater and school ha- might be less theoretical than you think, Barbara. Okay. Uh, well, in that UBC's, it's a sort of conservatory-style training. You're doing your dance, your movement, your scene study. Um, you're doing a little bit of Canadian theater history. Um... But I, I, especially when you're 18 years old, I think you're just tremendously hungry to, you know, cry and scream and roll around on the floor. And that's where I say that maybe, maybe some training 
some alternate form of training might have been useful because I was so young because I don't think I, I don't think I learned in school how to apply the academic to the practical mm-hmm. I don't think I learned how to connect them and I think I'm only vaguely starting to do that now through exposure to people who are able to speak so ably on both sides of things mm-hmm. so I tend to approach things really really practically I don't feel like I have a lot of language around theory and that's a sort of bugbear of mine that I bring up every now and then is I do feel like there's not enough cross-pollination between academia uh, theoretical approaches to theater and practical approaches um, I you know sometimes I try to pick Holger Syme's brain about stuff but then he <laughs> uses words that I don't understand and I get lost but, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I would say I lean f- much more on the practical cool and now I'd like to talk a bit about the fact that um, I love that you've been mentoring and educating younger artists, even though you're still rather young yourself. <laughs> what was the impetus for that? And how d- did the need present itself? And what did you recognize within yourself that made you realize that you could do this? Or were you just dropped into a situation and went from there? I The impetus was a desire to suck their youth out of them. <laughs> like a vampire. Um, And I joke, but that's also kind of true. I was the uh, director, facilitator, I guess, for the director's lab in Paprika last year. Paprika is the most amazing festival. What they do to encourage young artists is unparalleled and so underfunded. Mm -hmm. It's amazing what they do with no money. and Ali Joy Richardson, who was the uh, artistic producer that year, sort of nudged me into it. And I actually, she emailed me and I called her and said, Ali, why would I do this? I'm a child myself. <laughs> I don't know what I have to teach anyone. Uh, and she said, but I think you're very aware of, of what you're learning. And as someone who's in the process of learning, you can also pass that along at the same time. And so that's the approach I took when I mentored two young directors last year. I said to them right off the bat, look, I'm an emerging director as well. Let's all learn together. The one thing I can offer you is that I've been in the community longer than you have, so I can help in terms of um, some networking and connections and just how to uh, approach working relationships and working practices because of my acting experience. I know what it's like to be in those rooms. Um, but directing, let's learn all together. Let's run experiments together. So I could turn. I could use my own capacity for planning and structure and organizing, to create rooms for us to learn in all together. Um, but, but I really learn a lot from uh, emerging artists and their observations. I actually had some paprika folks in recently. I was doing some auditions, and I asked them to join me, and, and they were totally invaluable, what they saw, what I missed that they saw, just having them to bounce my ideas off of. And they were so uh, articulate and so much so well educated compared to how I was you know at their age they're maybe 10 years younger than me and I I think they're so really yeah I'm sucking the life out of them like a vampire (laughs) is what I'm doing well we should be two way (laughs) all of that so you 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 kind of answered this but I'm going to ask it anyway please Um, how do you assess younger artists ability and skills as you work with them as an educator and mentor performer and director and how prepared do you think the next generation is for careers in live theater Mm. Um, I look for flexibility and uh, 
to a certain degree, a willingness to, to jump in with what's on offer. Uh, I, I do think if you, if you are mentoring with an artist, especially an artist with a really established practice, that's not always me, but I in turn have taken classes with, with older uh, or, or more experienced artists. And I sense sometimes a tension in the room of people who, who, who think this is not my method, this is not my process, why am I learning this? I just don't think that's super useful if you're mentoring with, uh, with somebody who has a really sort of a really established practice. I think you kind of have to go with it for a while and then see what works for you and then go back to your own practice and pull out the stuff that works and maybe put this, the other stuff on the back burner for a while. Um, so I look for that kind of willingness, that kind of flexibility um, in younger artists. That said, everybody has to draw their own line and then maybe you realize, oh, this is not the mentor for me. Um, I feel like younger artists are incredibly well prepared in terms of the art and practice. I don't know how well prepared they are in terms of the practicalities of life as an artist. I was kind of disheartened by the recent Toronto Arts Foundation report that came out about the state of living in Toronto as an artist, where one in five artists are being renovated, and 73% of artists have considered moving out of Toronto, and everybody's making less than $35,000 a year. And this is where I wonder if I'm turning into kind of an old conservative because I'm like, there's a part of me that's like, maybe theater schools are making too many actors. Maybe we're making too many artists. Maybe we're just churning people through and taking their tuition. And and then on the other hand, I'm like, oh, no, Courtney, if people want to be artists, they, you, you can't, you know, deny them the opportunity to train. But but I do worry, are we, are we making... Uh, an industry that is sustainable for people to live in and survive in. Which brings me to how do you envision live theater in an early to mid 21st century context? Is it viable? And if so, how do you perceive it may remain relevant yet still be its unique self? Oh man, I don't know. <laughs> is I hope it's viable because I have no other skills, Barbara. <laughs> Uh, and I'm super pregnant, so I've really rolled the dice on this whole thing. Um, I went to the Stars show at Crows recently, which uh, is a sort of strange mashup of concert meets play. That you know, at, at Stars has quite a following, right? Yeah. So of course, a huge percentage of their audience is going to have been people who've been following them for years. But I do think that's one interesting example of a theater music hybrid that has really excited people and that has sold incredibly well and that maybe speaks to one example of the kind of experience people are looking for that they want well the show's literally called together and that's just that people crave togetherness in a really isolating world um so i don't think theater's going anywhere as an experience um i don't i worry that we don't have the maybe stamina, mental resilience for maybe some of the classical forms, the lengthy classical forms. You know, I did Man and Superman this summer at Shaw, and it was such a pleasure and such a challenge. And in a way, I feel like every audience member could have also rehearsed the show. I, I wish they could have. I had the same experience a bit with the Marshall McLuhan show I did last year at Tarragon, where I, I fear 
on some level, it was more fulfilling for the artists to spend weeks and weeks digging into this material and this content and then challenging for the audience to access it. So that's interesting. Maybe we need to find a way to provide the audience with a bit more of the process in addition to the play. Um, I just made that up right now. I have no idea how one would go about doing that. Um, but I don't think theater is going anywhere. There's more than ever. Of don't you, I mean, how yeah. often a week do you go out to see things? Most days, yeah. Right? So there's more, more theater than ever. There's not much more money, as far as I can tell, <laughs> and costs of living keep going up. But it'll, it'll always be there. Good. That's good to know. Do you find modern technologies help or hinder creative processes and how theater is presented? And if you have any examples of either or both of those things? Um, I did watch a live-streamed play recently. I'm wary of that because I watched it, enjoyed it, but also did my dishes at the same time. <laughs> so is that a theater experience? But on the other hand, it gave me access to a play in another geographical location that I, I, I wouldn't have seen. And I did watch the play, but I multitasked while I did it. Um, so yes, maybe. Um, I'm not a cool, savvy, tech, uh, technological artist. Uh, I, I don't incorporate uh, a lot of modern technology into my work yet. Um, but just practically speaking, from an indie producing point of view, it's certainly the ability to stay connected and to stay organized, um, you know, to Google Drive the heck out of everything, uh, has given the power of indie producing to a lot of people. Um, and that's pretty cool. It's made shows maybe more transportable. Um, uh, but uh, I don't know, soon we're going to do holographs and we'll have plays happening in our living rooms and maybe that'll be great. <laughs> Ooh, that's scary. Well, no, maybe it really will be great. Maybe yeah. people will crave the feeling. I mean, we're, we're back to watching live musicals on television, right? So mm -hmm. maybe people will crave seeing a show on their dining room table in holographic form, and then we'll want to go see the real thing as well and have a balance of the two. So, yeah. but, but that does negate the point I made earlier about togetherness and the desire yes. to come together physically. Yeah, because that's, that's my experience, mm -hmm. too, the being in the same room, the connection thing. Mm -hmm. And but don't you find in some theaters, yeah. I, I watched a preview of a show in the back row and I watched the opening in the front row and it was a completely different experience. It wasn't even a big theater, right? Mm -hmm. And the front row seat was just better. Yes. I I could practically smell them and I could, <laughs> I you know, my mirror neurons were firing more quickly uh, because I was closer to them and in the back row it felt a bit more like, and this was a very proscenium fourth wall kind of show, like it felt a bit more like watching a TV show. So maybe we already in our venues have a little bit of that separation from the, the show. So maybe mm -hmm. it's not wild to watch stuff at home too. Because mm. it is an intimate experience. Mm. And which brings me, and I didn't put this here, but it kind of comes from that question and my bias about being antibody microphone. Oh yeah. Huh. And it also brings, ties in the skill sets and things like that. Cause I like, I find that a body microphone inhibits the connection the emotional mm -hmm, connection mm -hmm. sometimes you can use that if that's if that's appropriate yeah but like animal farm for example yeah have the voice modulation yeah. yeah voice modulation or to create a sense of 
division and almost maybe Brechtian uh, alienation from from the actor so that you're not connecting on an emotive level and you're just hearing stuff on an intellectual level, which is probably part of the, the animal farm yeah. use as well. Yeah, so there is room for it. But if, and again, getting tying in with the young people, if they're not learning the... Um, projection and diction skills that I consider to be pretty basic mm-hmm. um, and if they're wearing body microphones and they don't have the appropriate diction that's just amplified garble as far mm-hmm. as I'm concerned mm-hmm. but some I am I don't know if that's your experience but my having talked to some people some young people are quite reticent about learning those skills possibly because they think they're going to do TV and movies, which, as you see, are going towards holographs and they're going towards, you know, computer-generated and, well, they need people. Right. So how does that fit into the whole perspective for you? Oh, I haven't seen a lot of shows that use body mics, I have to say. Good. Um, but I Usually when it's, like, outside or something and they have to, right? Yeah, Shakespeare in High Park yeah. or... Um, but I saw that show from Newfoundland at Factory, and they were wearing body mics. Ah, and that bothered me because right. I wanted to connect with them because that's a pretty emotional story. And I found the body mics didn't let me do that. Right, right. And Whereas some people I know feel like it actually adds, adds intimacy because you can hear somebody whispering, you can hear somebody talking in their lower range, using all of their vocal fry. Um so it's a taste thing, too. It's what you're used to. Um, I don't know. I, I would I would totally use body mics in work if I felt like it added an interesting experience for the audience or enabled something. I agree, though. I I feel I saw somebody somebody came in and 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 did an audition for me not that long ago and. We had a conversation in the room before they did their piece and then they did their piece and I swear they were four or five meters away from me and I suddenly couldn't hear them uh, because they had gone into this really intimate I'm acting voice, TV mm. acting voice and I suspect they're fabulous on camera and they're a good actor but they, they, uh, it, it was way, the frame was way too small. Um, so you, you got to know your frame. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's up to the director really to push their actors in that situation. It's not a... It's not a huge leap, the technique of projecting. Um, you just have to to test your space a little bit. Yeah, and we could go on forever on that aspect, nah. so I'm going to... But yeah, no, I, I, I will move on. Yeah, but I can that tell that you're, you're secretly... It's, ladies it's and gentlemen, Barbara Fingero is enraged <laughs> by body micing. You're fuming on the inside, I can tell. Well, yes, we can talk about it some other we can just have a whole session on that and but um yeah so i'm gonna let you know that you continue to be someone whose work excites me you make me care about your characters and bring the best out in the people whom you direct i had the pleasure of seeing you perform in 52 pickup at the fringe for example and i'm curious about the process of preparing for a play with so many different scenarios both with respect to your own acting, plus directing other participants, too. What kind of choices did you have to make since you couldn't possibly rehearse all of the different combinations in which the cards would be chosen? 
And did it help that it was unlikely the audience was familiar with the play? So if you said something differently, we wouldn't know. Or would that just mess up your partner? Barbara, are you asking me how do you remember all those lines? No. <laughs> because I know that's related to character and, and all of that stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about a play where it doesn't go yeah. in the same order yeah. all the of time. Of course, there's no, there's and, no, no, and no how linear you narrative manage to hold on to. that. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, we had four sets of actors, um, and Paolo Santalucia directed two of them, and I directed the other two, and we would come together occasionally to check in and make sure we were all roughly on the same page and could work on the same set. Um, and I, we, we, we simply rehearsed every scene separately um, and learned all of them separately. It's not... Uh, an unusual rehearsal technique to jump around a little bit and work on, you know, different segments of a show. In, in any script, even the most linear script, you're still going to want to divide it up into s segments, little scenes, little events. Um, so we rehearsed each one. And then the big challenge came in how the actors could exist between the scenes, between the selecting, so you, you know, people who didn't see it, you throw the cards in the air and then you pick them one by one and it, it's randomized the order of the scenes. And so a scene would end with an actor holding up the card to indicate the end of the scene. They'd put it in a box and then they'd select a new one. Um, and for a while, the actors were sort of just dropping the performance energy between the scenes because who are you if you're not in a scene? And then we discovered that that was actually the most compelling part to me of the play was, was, was the story told, the tension left over from a previous perhaps angry scene or the um, nostalgia, the romantic nostalgia left over from a particularly loving scene. We sort of placed the, the whole play in the context of uh, it, it it's a remembrance of a relationship that is over. So the most loving scene ends and the two of them are left facing each other thinking, oh, we used to have that, we don't anymore. Um, and all of that is communicated silently through you know, the face gestures as they then select the next scene. And then the next scene, you pick it up, you look at the card, you see the scene on the card and you think, oh great, we get to do this one. Or, oh no, this is the scene where I act like an asshole I don't want to visit it again um, so that was the challenge was the space in between not so much the order keeping track of your lines I mean line flubs always happen and you just deal with them it's fine yeah. um, and shout out to our amazing stage manager uh, we had Sam Hale for most of that uh, it was you know fringe and when we remounted it it was still pretty low budget uh, so we had four or five lighting states and Sam from the title of the scene without looking in his book would have to adjust to those lighting states on the fly. So he was the one who had to play a real memory game with himself. Cool. Um, and just, I don't know if you want to talk too about how you decided it, um, each of the pairings and who would play whom in each du duet and if how it was different in the remount in which you directed but didn't perform. Oh, yeah. Um, gosh. It's been a while. Uh, we... You, you, 
chemistry sometimes. Mm. Some some of the most wonderful couples because it's a, a romantic piece, right? Mm-hmm. And so we had some uh, some straight couples, some queer couples. Um, some of the most potent ones were people who don't actually necessarily get along so well in real life. <laughs> but we just sort of had people read together and we auditioned some folks when we remounted it. I didn't want to be in it. Um, again, I was more interested in directing it and for no particular reason. I enjoyed I worked with Kristen, Kristen Zaza um, and we had a great time doing it together. But on the remount, I just wanted to be able to see from the outside. Um, so yeah, chemistry. We just read people together for chemistry. Cool. Um, I also loved your musical performances, for example, in fun pieces such as Ballad of Weedy Peat Straw, one of the best names ever, by the way, <laughs> and The Barber of Seville, in which I believe you even yodeled, as well as in other kinds of shows, including concerts, in which I seem to recall, for example, you're, re- you're performing a remarkable Pirate Jenny, plus you played some musical instruments, and I'm just wondering what kind of preparation you did for those multi-duty performances, and how do you decide whether to play an instrument, if so, which one and when? PSA to emerging artists out there, if you can learn a portable instrument to a reasonable degree of skill, it might prove to be useful <laughs> to your career. Um, I. I as I mentioned, I studied music as a, as a child, yeah. but I would not call myself a real musician now. I'm married to a musician, uh, so I, I know what a real musician <laughs> looks like, and I'm not one. I don't practice enough. Um, nevertheless, uh, on some of those projects, I was approached because I had the additional skill set of singing or playing the flute or playing the piano. Um, and I would prepare by freaking out and demanding that I get the sheet music well in advance and working on it uh, really hard. Um, there's a recording from Barbara of Seville where my flute sounds so much like a tin whistle and it is ever so slightly sharp and it's so bad. I think it improved <laughs> later on in the course of the run. Um, but I'm definitely an actor who plays instruments rather than a musician, instrumentalist actor. The order of those hyphenates is important. Um, yeah. Good. More recently, you've been directing shows like The Wolves, which was one of the best ensemble pieces performances I've ever seen. Aw, thank you. I've only been going to theater for about 60 years. (laughs) Thank you, Barbara. Well, it's true. The logistics of that, though, must have been daunting. Did you test actors' endurance during the audition process, or were you just fortunate that you found people capable of simultaneously, simultaneous physical activity and emotional commitment Talk about the experience of directing this mark- remarkable ensemble. Oh, man. I mean, I was so lucky. We did. We auditioned a lot of people, a lot, and I'm super proud of the cast that we ended up with. Uh, we could have cast it a, a number of times over. It is alarming how much talent there is in Toronto. We, In our initial adi- audition, we had people do scenes with readers and also uh, dribble a soccer ball um, just to show footwork. And it was way more, I'm not a sports player. I'm not a (laughs) soccer player. So, you know, pretty low bar for convincing me that you were sporty. But so it was way more about selling me on sportiness than actual soccer skill, though we did see a number of people who were just remarkable players. Um, And we asked if you had any additional soccer tricks, please show us your stuff, show us your juggling, you know. 
Um, and then we brought in callbacks in groups and had people do stretches together so that we could see um, sort of group awareness and do some passing together, that kind of stuff. Um, and then we were very lucky to get some, we did a little workshop, we cast it, we did a little workshop, um, and we had some soccer coaches in. And I, I have to say, again, being proud of my cast, uh, you know, one of my cast members was playing Hamlet, right, at Stratford mm -hmm. next season. One of my cast members was just named as a protege by Sonny Drake, who just won uh, this yeah. wonderful Metcalf Award, right? Um, one of them is starring in a show at Tarragon this season. So it's, it's just a remarkable bunch of people. Um, and they just worked their butts off. We would split the days into soccer training and rehearsal, and it was really hot, and we would go out to the Jimmy Simpson Park and play soccer together until they felt like they could look like cool soccer players. And they were, some of them had more experience than others, but they were really committed at looking like they could do it. And in fact, at one of the shows, uh, one of the actors told me, she went out afterwards and somebody came up to her and said, uh, I am on the national, or I used to play for the national soccer team of France, and, or something like that. Uh, <laughs> see, I know so little about soccer, I can't even name an actual team. But I used to play in France and, and uh, professionally, and, and uh, you, are, you are all very good. <laughs> and we took that as the highest compliment. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I also enjoyed your pieces in Intermission in which you wrote about performing and parenting while working in the arts. Mm -hmm. I'd actually hoped you would write more articles. I guess you got busy with other <laughs> things. But do you have any other plans to write? Not necessarily articles, but anything. And what aspects of performing and directing, if any, do you think may inform your parenting skills, given that it's <laughs> imminent? That I'm soups pregs, as yeah. I like to say. Um, yeah, those were really fun to write. They were, they were absolutely selfish. I just wanted tips and tricks because I knew that I wanted to probably have a kid uh, at some point, despite everything she says as she looks forlornly out the window at the world. Um, <laughs> and I, I think I wrote four or five of them. And I, yeah, I did sort of lose momentum because I sort of thought at a certain point it, it, it does all become, even in its individuality, you realize, well, everybody has different ways of doing this, and mm -hmm. that's kind of all the same in, in that. But, but I, I haven't talked to Intermission about this, and of course, m many things have changed in Intermission in the intervening couple of years, but um, maybe once I have the kit, I should do a last, uh, or at the very least, I'll even put it on my own website or something, a last... So this is how it turned out for me. Um, and I'll, I'll be able to speak quite directly to the experience of working and parenting because I'm going back to work alarmingly early. Mm. Fingers crossed, we'll see how it all goes. I'm anticipating that it will be something I can't actually plan for, so we'll see how it goes. Um, but writing-wise, I don't think I'm a writer, actually. I don't have the discipline and I'm... I'm I really need other people to bounce ideas off of. I'm much more of a collaborator. I am hanging out with some friends soon um, to work on adapting something for a mm. TYA show. So adaptation is a little bit more my speed. Um, and even those intermission pieces, those are interviews, yeah. right? So it's that collaboration that I really crave. Um, again, as with the emerging artists, I am a vampire. Mm -hmm. I love collaboration. <laughs> Okay, 
is it about the Shaw which led you to choose to work there? And did the experience meet your expectations? And if so, how? And if not, how? Yeah, I was really pleased when they asked me if I wanted to go and do a season. Um, I was craving the kind of artistic rigor that I think the Shaw has. Um, on top of your rehearsal schedule, there's lots of classes, there's lots of access to mentorship and teachers there, which uh, is really exciting. I think they're also really pushing themselves to diversify their programming in all kinds of ways, um, which is really, really great. Uh, the company, it took me a couple, it took me like a month and a half to settle in because of the feeling of my life being on hold. It's very strange to go to a really small touristy town, as beautiful as Niagara-on-the-Lake is, it's a bit, it can feel a bit pretend sometimes. <laughs> Don't tell anyone I said that. Like it's all fudge and jam, you know? Um, and yeah. my life in Toronto is just just looks so different. So it took me a while, and then once I got into the swing of things, and, and I should add, I found out I was pregnant right as soon as I got there, and so that no <laughs> doubt had some impact on my experience of, whoa, my life, what am I doing? Um, but after a while, the community feeling of the company really won me over, and the care everybody was taking with the work. The actors at Shaw who've been there for a long time, you know, your Marla McLean, your Patrick Elligan, uh, your Andre Sills, your, you know, they work so hard, Jonathan Tan. You know, they, they are so committed to to their craft that it was really inspiring to me um, to watch them come into rehearsal every day and ask harder and harder questions. Um, and they're all lovely. I I. I, I really tried, but I, I was unable to find the dark underbelly <laughs> of the Shaw Company. Um, I'm sure it's there somewhere, but I didn't. I wasn't able to find it. They were really lovely, and they were really kind to me, especially because I was going through this kind of alternate experience of realizing I was pregnant, realizing I was going to be about five and a half months at the end of the contract, and realizing that I had to sword fight Tom Rooney the whole time. Uh, and everybody was like, You're, you could do it. What do you need? Have you seen this physiotherapist? Have you seen this Cairo? What do you need? So uh, so I have nothing but good things to say about Shaw. Good. Well, you fit in beautifully. You, Thank I, you. I didn't actually recognize you at first in the Cyrano oh, thing. Yeah. So, Chris Abraham, Kim Rampersad, amazing <laughs> directors, amazing designers. Yeah, good for you. Thank goodness for those pumpkin pants. Really <laughs> saved the well, day. Well, you're not the first person they had to expand the wardrobe for. <laughs> yeah. They know how to do that. It's true, they do. And their dressers are wonderful as well. They were always like, do you want me to take this out a bit? And I would say, no, no, I'm fine. And they would say, you look uncomfortable. Let me just take it out a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Good. Um, what is it about the assistant director position at Tarragon that made you choose to work there? Mm -hmm. And what does the job entail? And will you be able to explore what, you've, what you'd like to learn or try? And I do have a fun fact. When I first heard of the Howland Company, I thought it was associated with Tarragon because of where Tarragon is located. You're not the first person to think that. So <laughs> I think it's perfect serendipity that you belong there. Oh, um, I, I have been interested in artistic leadership for a while. I did, um, in my time at Soul Pepper, I was a resident artist there and had some programming, curatorial, um, uh, community building 
stuff that I that I did while I was there, um, leadership stuff. Um, and then when this opportunity came up, I thought, well, what a great chance to see if I like it and give myself the freedom even to realize, oh, this is a commitment that maybe I'm not willing to make. Uh, you know, Richard works really long hours and I'm witnessing that and working some pretty long ones myself and thinking, oh, okay, in terms of work-life balance, how do you, how do you make this work? Um, well, I, I, right now I'm doing a lot of play reading, a lot of play watching, play going, going to see a lot of stuff, um, meeting with a lot of artists, you know, who, who might have inquiries or proposals to make. Um, I spent a week up in Ottawa with Richard Assistant directing on the remount of Cottagers and Indians that toured to GCTC, uh, in part because he was also directing Buffoon through that mm. rehearsal period, so he was able to pass some of the rehearsal duties over to me for Cottagers and Indians. Um, I've also been reading a lot of applications. We had a, a lot of TCR grants uh, come through. Sorry, TCR? Theatre Creators Reserve grants, Thank you. where the theatre serves as a kind of a jury themselves um, to reassign OAC funding. Um, and I'm still reading a bunch of Urjo Kureta residency grants for the residency that takes place, uh, that will take place next year at Tarragon. So the really cool thing is being exposed to so many artists' work, reading about their practices, their ethos. As Richard said, if you read TCRs, you'll have your finger on the pulse of every new play that's mm -hmm. going to be developed in Canada probably, you know, for the next couple of years. Um, so it's a wonderful position to, to see a lot of different stuff and be exposed to a lot of different stuff. Um, and I'm going to direct something there next season. Uh, Three Women of Swatow by Chloe Hung. Right. Uh, and I'm also, you know, privy to some programming thoughts uh, and decisions. So, uh, yeah, I'm totally getting to do all the things that I that I want to do there. Sometimes I feel like there aren't quite enough hours in the day, but um, I will say there's a lot of understanding of that as well. Uh, when I came to them and said, by the way, folks, I know you just offered me this job, but uh, I'm going to have a baby in January. They were... You know, Richard and Andrea were very much like, this is great news. And I, I was a bit sheepish. I, For all of my rah, rah, rah women and, and, and folks having kids should be able to do whatever they want. I was a bit like, oh, I'm sorry. I've gotten pregnant. <laughs> like, There's nothing to be sorry about. This is wonderful news. We'll make it work. When do you want to take a break? When do you want to come back? Whatever you need. So they are very supportive of making family life work for people. I'm not surprised. Mm -hmm. well, good for you. Um, given that you're continuing to challenge yourself as an artist by expanding your performing, directing, educating, leadership, and administration skills, where do you see yourself heading as the century moves on? Will you try to focus on one particular aspect of your many talents, or will you try to explore each of them individually and or in various combinations? And which do you do deem most fulfilling? And how does your family life fit into the picture, which you kind of talked a bit oh, about? Oh, man, you tell me, Barbara. Um, <laughs> this is the question. This Sky's is the, huge, the limit, right? Yes, but the huge anxiety of moving into this phase of my career is feeling like doors are closing. And I say this to people, and they say, they're not, they're not. Life is long, you don't know. Then I'm sure they're right. Um, but for example, I, I uh, parted ways with my agent um, 
I don't know, two or three years, two years ago now. Um, and for a while made some effort to find a new agent. And then Shaw came up and I sort of thought, well, I don't really want to pay somebody a percentage on this gig that, that I got myself. Um, so now I haven't had a TV and film agent for a while. And I doubt I'll get another one who wants, you know, I'm not sure if TV and film agent really wants to work with somebody who keeps running off and doing theater for huge chunks of the year or directing things or is going to take time off to do admin stuff or to have a baby. So, so I feel like the door is closing on TV and film, even though that's actually something that I am interested in. Um, you asked me such a positive question and I'm just saying negative things. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what the future holds. I will be interested in doing more leadership. I'm definitely interested in more direction. I have no acting gigs lined up right now. Um, I did have some, but they were very close to the birth of this kid. So I pulled out of those um, in anticipation of long, really committed evening runs of shows being a bit of a challenge with an infant at home. Whereas directing, I'm sure, will be just as much of a challenge, but at least is a bit more flexible scheduling-wise. You're, you're a bit more in charge. Um, you have a bit more agency. You can decide that you're taking lunch now. <laughs> uh, so I'll continue to try to diversify my own career and survive and try new things. That's a really simple answer for a beautifully complex question. Well, it sounds wonderful to me. And, <laughs> and none of us really know what the future holds, but you know, we all have ideas of how we think we might want to go and then something happens and mm -hmm. then we go with it. But mm -hmm. it sounds to me like you're you're pretty open to the possibilities. That's how I've always operated in the world. I do not have a plan. I've never really had a plan. Um, my goal coming out of university was mere survival, and I am surviving. I'm really proud of that. Um, but I do not... Jennifer Bruin talked to me once about uh, and having an artistic statement, and I admire that so much. And I don't feel like I have one, and I keep thinking I really need to spend some time going to retreat somewhere and come up with my own personal artistic statement, because at the moment I'm just sort of rolling with it. Sounds good. Well, I could ask you four million questions, but <laughs> I'm going to just ask, is there anything else you would like to add? Um, my husband who is a remarkable artist in his own right and who's exposed me to such weird and wonderful new forms of art because he works in new music um, and also has connections to the dance world and um, is really one of the most interesting artists I know and who's wonderful and Greg Rio and is yeah. taking a bunch of time off when we have this kid so that I can go back to work early and he can be the primary caregiver in as much as that as possible. Anyway, he says that the key to good interviews is to say something really controversial. So um, <laughs> I will say here that Nanaimo bars suck. They're really not good desserts. Yeah. And I have to admit, I've never had one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we're on side with each other. Don't. Just okay. don't. Well, I'll be cutting good. that. Honestly. <laughs> oh, might be. Well, as I say, I've got a million other things I could ask you, but I'm going to say this has been such a pleasure, and thank you for doing this. And 
I just wish you all the best, both in your career and your family life. And if I get a chance to hold the baby, I would be most grateful. <laughs> okay, deal. And, and you can you can take care of the baby. I'll send the baby to your place, and you can keep an eye good. on it. Sounds <laughs> good. I do remember holding somebody's three-month-old and having a great time till that baby tried to have supper with me, <laughs> and I had to give her back to her mom because I couldn't do that. Right. But the baby was smart enough to know where to look, so mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. kind of fun. <laughs> so thank you again, and thank you, Kelly, for this opportunity. I've really had a blast, and I, and I, I just love you both so much, so thank Back you. Back at you, to both of you. Thanks a lot. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in to the favorite series brought to you by My Entertainment World. Be sure to check out our website, myentertainmentworld.ca, for all the latest articles and podcasts coming from all of our great writers over there. And also follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at myentworld, myentworld, for all the latest happening there. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes, review, rate, all that jazz, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.